You're listening to the third episode of Season 3 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast is about the strict, rules-focused Christian lifestyle not working, but is not an attack on faith. It's about trying to maintain some connection to God despite everything. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is about me and others pontificating and ruminating around a song from my concept album, Death in Tiny Spoonfuls. Episode 3, The Magic Castle. This is one of those silly songs that burst into my head almost fully formed. Some people find my silly songs charming and more spontaneous and creative, while others find them inexplicable and annoying. In the context of the album story idea, the wanderer takes refuge from the zombies in the street in an old fortress-like compound calling itself the Magic Castle. The point of this one is simple and has been gone into in past podcast episodes. It's about growing up with a carefully curated, indoctrinated view of the world around us, viewing our Western society, other Christian groups, and people as incredibly dangerous and hostile to us because of our connection with Jesus Christ, who they crucified, after all. It was very simple. It was us and them. We were for God, and we're trying to convince people to give up serving themselves, which was a way of serving the devil, and join us in serving the good, serving the Lord. There were, we knew, many false and self-deluding Christian groups who claimed or even thought they were leading people to God, but were really just providing yet another human, systemically corrupt, ideological product. And we knew that Satan had all the musicians, filmmakers, and TV showrunners working hard to keep people away from the God who loved us. So that feeling that you were part of something uncool, something culty, something old-fashioned, obsolete, superstitious, and passé... That was Satan and his servants making you feel that way, trying to turn you away from your God. The path to God was narrow, rough, and uphill all the way, while the road to hell was paved with wine, women, and song, with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So in 1982, when I was 12 and saw the LP record for Iron Maiden's Number of the Beast album prominently displayed in the front of Richard and Rosemary Loeffler's R&R Books and Records store in the County Fair Mall in Smith Falls where I lived and went to school with Richard and Rosemary's son Jude, I took my dad over to see it. I've been told that entertainers serve Satan, but I couldn't believe they were being so overt or that Richard and Rosemary were willing to be part of this. Apparently, some non-brethren people knew about the beast and the coming apocalypse and 666 and everything. And not only did they know about it, they were celebrating it, I thought. Unashamed advertised that they were forces of destruction. Meatloaf and ACDC albums had made me aware that not everyone spoke about hell with the reverence that we showed it in the meeting. At meeting, we spoke of little besides sin, death, the devil, and hell. I would have been entirely unable at that point to grasp the mundane reality that all this common knowledge horror movie stuff was being used simply for theatrical flair, for color or mere decoration, to get attention and sell records. The Beatles had outraged parents of the previous generation by pointing out that they were in fact bigger, as in more well-known and popular across the world, than Jesus. Iron Maiden's album cover depicted the devil as merely a string puppet being manipulated by Eddie, their band mascot. It told you everything you needed to know. They were using the devil imagery, pulling its strings to sell their albums. 
And they weren't killing or torturing people. They were making operatic heavy metal, painted in the broadest of strokes, and partying as hard as they could. For them, that's what evil was. Partying hard and putting the devil on your album cover. I guess when you lived in a society as safe, as polite, and politically correct even as ours, you didn't really know about evil. So you might think that a $12 heavy metal record was it. This was a time with lawn darts, toy guns without any orange plastic on them at all, and kids drinking from the garden hose and public fountains. What kind of idiot would pay money to buy water, which literally fell from the sky? It wasn't like it was for sale in stores anyway, apart from Perrier. When Evian eventually came out, we noted that the name was Naive, spelled backwards. None of us were naive enough to believe that bottled water was being imported directly from France when we knew that they could just turn the tap on here and get limitless quantities of exactly the same chemical themselves. The 70s and 80s was a time when 7- or 8-year-old kids ran out the door of the house, hopped on bikes having never seen a helmet, let alone elbow pads for that, and played far and afield with their parents only being vaguely aware of where they were for hours at a time and no electronic devices to check in on them. So long as strangers didn't seem interested in us kids, ignored us, and went about their own days, we didn't pay any attention to them either. We'd seen the films at school. Don't play on the train tracks. Don't play in the high-voltage hydro facility. Avoid strangers who seem creepily interested in you. Tell a police officer. Officer Bob is your friend. You're not a robot, and if you lose an arm, you can't just put it back on like Astar. I am Astar, a robot. I can put my arm back on. You can't. We played freely, and if anyone was missing an eye or an arm, it was likely some really old guy who'd served in a war or worked with chainsaws and hay balers on a daily basis. We knew we were safe. Jonathan Haidt and Steven Pinker are offending everyone lately by writing bestseller books nowadays, citing stats which show how incredibly safer the world in which today's teens and 20-somethings grow up in was even than the one we Gen Xers did. Unlike the generations which came after us, we grew up thinking of the world as a safe place to play. It wasn't perfect, but we could deal with it. We could tell that the world had been made extremely safe for us as compared to the previous far less insecure, anxious, and self-esteem deficient one that had come before. Aspirin and vitamins were starting to be sold with tamper-proof and child-proof lids to make things even safer for the less evolutionarily gifted of us. Generally, if another child did or said something that hurt our feelings or which we felt was unfair, we tried to deal with it among ourselves, and on the whole, that worked. We learned, therefore, a lot about social negotiation and self-advocacy. In fact, we tried to avoid pulling adults into our interactions because we just kind of knew that adults tended to make decisions markedly different from the ones we wanted made, and we lost all agency and say once they took the reins away and told us we shouldn't be playing in that abandoned house anyway or took the bicycle away or said we couldn't ever throw a ball near the house anymore. Your reward for trying to make an adult do your play negotiation social skills work for you was getting slapped with even more rules and limits, and we knew this, and no one wanted that. And anyway, the world was pretty safe. We kids knew it. My church, though, went against all that. They didn't go full Generation X parenting on us, raising us to fear the water, the air, the sun, strangers, germs, fashion magazines, Barbies, and white supremacists. But they asked us to trust them that cultural things that competed directly with church culture were a threat. Church had its own book of stories, its own songs, and its own heroes. Obviously, purely for entertainment books of stories, and worse yet, stories on television and at the movies, and 
Obviously, pop songs and superheroes were competing with church. I mean, God. When I hear people talk about full-on cults or large global religious or ideological movements, it always comes down to money. What's really going on in Scientology, the Moonies, the Plymouth Brethren, Christian Church, that far stricter, more successful branch of the group I grew up in? What seems to have mainly been the point of BLM? Money, mostly, it seems to me. And control. And when you control people's pursuit of pleasure and personhood, you control the people themselves. So what was going on in the group I was raised in? Money wasn't that big a deal there. We didn't formally tithe, and no enormous amount of money was donated, so that left only control. So that became a much bigger deal. Besides telling me, every Plymouth Brethren group inevitably moves towards trying to eventually become a group of a single correct person, the ex-Brethren university professor I had when I was 19 also told me, the infighting in Brethren groups is so dirty because the stakes are so small. That didn't appear to make any sense at all at first, but it's true, 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 and it has a lot to say about human nature as well. Ben and Ed, lifelong Christian missionaries and Bible college students and workers who are excommunicated from the Brethren because they fell in love with one another, don't see a lot of life in groups like the Brethren one, of which they were members. There's brokenness happening, there's churches closing, but not opening. There's um, a lack of basically discipleship, that people are not passing on the things they've learned to the next group of people, except if they're your children. <laughs> but there is no um, outside contact with the world in general. And so that was the group of people gathered to do that. There's a lot of, lot of logic that seems to be lost sometimes. But I think there's a common word that Ed's been using, and I do hear it, is fear. Oh, yeah. That word of we're afraid of hell, we're afraid of punishment, we're afraid of the end of the world's coming. We got to hunker down. We got to keep ourselves safe from the evil world around us. We need to watch out the table. They 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 watching guard the table. The yeah. table. Ed, who grew up in Colombia, notes that those magic castle walls separate parents and their kids who aren't living the way the church demands. One of the the things I when I when I when I talk to the elders. Many of them have young families, like, you know, have children. Mm -hmm. And I, I asked them, directly, I said, if one of your sons or daughters one day say, Dad, I'm gay, what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. do you, are you going to do the same thing that you did to me? Or, or you have a special thing for them? Mm -hmm. And they say, we're going to do the same to them. And, it, yeah. you know, you can hear these people speaking with so much pride and so much you know like arrogance i don't know it's it's so because they defending according to their their, their ideas is we are defending god's word we are defending and we're trying to put the name of jesus you know and in, in in higher we don't want jesus name to be this dishonor Ben points out the role that fear plays in many Christians and their church groups. All these things are fear-based, and it's so clear in the New Testament that there is no fear in love. That's a verse. So what are we doing there? Let's look at that again. You know, Love has to be our default. If we're in fear, we're feeding the dark side, and we're giving that a power. I, I would say that the upbringing is, is like if you come out and you don't have an anxiety disorder, good on you, because it's um, pretty much how you're trained to think is in, in the defensive. Mm -hmm. Aren't they one step away of, of pretending that they're brave people who are keeping Jesus from getting defiled? Absolutely. There's you the, can't defile Jesus. 
where did that come from? I, I and they it, use words like defend, which is means that they're viewing human life, um, church dealings, and Christianity it, it, entirely in war language. So it's it's always a fight, it's a battle, it's a struggle. Um, these are the words that they use, and they use words like defend. And the idea that the Bible or the name of Jesus needs me to stand up and defend it, you know, against, I don't think it needs me at all. I need it. These groups kind of make themselves a little castle to hide in, and they don't really engage outside of their own church. Like the whole point of the church is to shut out the rest of the world. Oh, 100%. Yes. Yeah. That is the, the number one thing I kept running into as I saw, you know, over 20 specific leadership in, in the actual assemblies um, across North America was the common thread. We have to hang in there and, and we're the remnant. Everyone else is wrong, not just the world, but other churches are wrong. We're the mm-hmm. only ones doing this right. And so we have to put up these strong walls. Otherwise, we're going to be deceived by the other churches and theology in the world. So the great fear of being deceived created the walls. Angel, born into a sex cult in Christian clothing, speaks of this type of fear being even more normal and useful in keeping the machinery of cults working, particularly one with, to put it mildly, extremely unorthodox familial living arrangements. Growing up the way that I did, we were the children, I mean, our cult name was literally the children of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were the children of God and everyone else was a, um, like a messenger from Satan or a test. Like even my aunts and my aunts are of course, lovely, regular human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was taught to be suspicious of them and to lie to them. I don't like even the preface for my aunts are coming to visit. We're like, but they're systemites yeah. and we can't trust systemites. So we have to lie to them because they're trying to get us. And they're trying, you know, if we, you like, you can't tell them that dad has a girlfriend. You can't tell them that you don't live with mom and dad. You have to say that you see mom and dad every day. And you have to say that, you know, that you are, you are getting your schooling and don't tell them that you're punished because if they know these things, then they're going to start attacking us. And so it's just the, the premise, the way that you see the world, the setup of, of the world that you're living in is that everyone is out to attack you and you really have to stay loyal to the people that you know, because they're the only ones that know the real truth. And so that was just the setup. And so I always felt super suspicious of other people. And even after I left, it was, it felt very isolating because I'm trying to live in this new world that I don't know, but I'm still incredibly distrustful because everyone is still labeled like in my head as an enemy, you know, and everyone has it out for me. And I'm trying to keep my inner world safe, but literally everything from from the music that I accidentally hear on the radio to like conversations that I pass everything is a red flag and everything sets off a danger signal that I'm in danger and my spirit is in danger and so it's just a really terrible way to live and you're just constantly in fight or flight but you don't know that you are and so this is all very normal for you to live with this mindset of feeling like you're a victim and feeling like you're constantly under attack which is obviously totally irrational and can create a lot of like mental illness if you're just walking through your day and you think everything is out to get you. You must have a very more dramatic than than I had. For me, believe it or not, with the song, I was picturing like a, a child's cardboard fort of a castle. 
Mm. And they were saying, hide in here. And increasingly, as I grew, it became too small. And I looked at it and saw that it was like a cardboard thing and mm. it wouldn't protect anyone from anybody. I imagine that's not quite how you viewed your, your group is a bit well, more colossal. We had a castle analogy. Mm-hmm. We had this whole thing called standing in the gap. And the okay. analogy that we got was from our leader who he would get drunk and ramble and his secretary would take them down. And this would be the propaganda that we would read. Um, but he had a whole analogy of like, we're in the castle mm-hmm. and the castle is our kingdom. And the enemy is always out there trying to attack us. And he's, he, you know, he's breached the wall. And so there's a portion of the wall that is crumbled. Um, but there's one night that puts on the armor of God and goes to stand in the gap. And we all need to be the knight that is willing to stand in the gap to protect the castle. Isn't it nice that you get to be the hero of the story? Totally. Yeah. And you got to put on the whole armor of God. And then we had a whole thing for each piece of armor. And there was one for the helmet where it's nailed into your head and you can't remove it, but it's for your own safety. And we didn't have that. We had the, there's no armor for your back in that story. And therefore you can't retreat and you have, we had all that stuff. Okay. Okay. And, and we, it's creepily similar. We didn't say system. We didn't say Chris, we didn't say systemites, but we said people from system, which is essentially the same. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of churches are not so casual and just talking about people in other groups as some, some terms are like worldlies or, I forget what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons call them, but there's a term for anyone who's not a member. And they don't usually say enemy, but that's what they're feeling. But that's what they're heavily implying. It's so funny to me that there are all these analogies of war when it comes to the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And it's all about like being a soldier and sacrifice and dying daily for God and all of this stuff. So you it really feeds into that very natural human reaction that we have, which is love, like for ourselves and others, where we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect our family. And they take something that's very natural and normal, and they pervert it. And they end up using it against you and your family, all in the name of God or in the name of something that's coming. And it's like, no, it's just there's one (laughs) human being that wants to control the narrative And they end up using all these very beautiful human instincts against you. Michael Vetter, who sometimes serves as my illustrator, agrees with my take on how the Brethren group we grew up in saw itself as protected from this evil world by the sheltering spiritual walls of the meeting. They were seeing a wall. They had this enclave inside the wall and they were all facing outside protecting what was on the inside. Evan feels that hiding in a church culture is not a good thing to teach children. You hope to fill with confidence and resilience later in life. I think it's fair for a church to discuss what they perceive as evil in the world, but not unlike we might say, you know, about the education system. We do not teach people to be sort of strong or to be uh, resilient by telling them to hide. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's nothing powerful about being harmless. That doesn't mean you need to be mean. It just means you need to be equipped to deal with what comes your way. Probably anybody who's listening to your podcast is is familiar with Noah's Ark. I think the takeaway from Noah's Ark is a flood is coming. I don't think that what we want to do is try to hide in the one place we think the rain isn't going to get us. It's build the ark. Um, Mm -hmm. I I, I sort of think about that as as a a perfect story of resilience. I want to build my ark. I do not think that pretending church is the ark 
you know, in the rainfall is the right way to think about that story. I don't think that that makes any sense. The stats don't indicate that the church is going to keep afloat for too much longer, it looks like. (laughs) That's right. I argue in this podcast that we both were part of a restrictive, shame-based, joy-hating Plymouth Brethren culture, and that you and I were part of a group of young people who were trying to take the Bible seriously, do a bunch of the fun stuff too, but somehow not need to hide it, leave the group, or get kicked out either. Most people kind of pick one of those options. So first of all, do you agree? Do you see it that way? Yeah, I, I, I do see it that way. Um, for the most part, it was a fun-hating uh, culture. And, but I think it was based, mostly based on, on people's fear of, of getting ostracized um, or not fitting into the culture. Um, I think we would probably, tell me if I'm wrong, would both agree that we uh, agreed with the original premise of the, the meeting as it was growing up in it. The, the whole idea of having a church that was people coming together and letting the spirit work and um, not having ordained clergy and having a direct, you know, feeling like everybody had a direct connection with God and, and going from there. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I always thought that on paper, if you describe it to somebody, it sounds like the most free, you know, individualistic, you know, nobody looking over your shoulder kind of faith community. And yet how it was lived out, what would you say about that? Um, It went totally the opposite direction. And if you look back into history, it was, you know, about 20 years after it started, that it started going, going downhill and click forming and people, you know, trying to oust others. So competitive. I mean, I think competition was a, a major problem yeah and i think we me and you both bought into it oh, yeah. um, pretty heavily i spoke with natalie who was raised mormon about all of these odd random little things we tried to make our members keep themselves pure from it wasn't like in germany no one was drinking beer or in the 1800s no brethren people were smoking pipes like they all were right and it's a north american thing where they decided temperance which i, I think uh really got running with the Christian Women's Temperance Union mm-hmm. um, and prohibition in America made this idea that alcohol was a criminal thing or a lower class thing or, mm-hmm. or, or something like that. But, you know, by the time I come along, there's no smoking, there's no swearing, there's no drinking, there's no dancing, there's no pop music, there's no movies, there's no television. Oh, geez. Yeah, I could see how that could be traumatizing then when you're cut off from like, television <laughs> media. Yeah. Yeah, I remember my dad walking the television out to the, the curb when I was five and leaving it for the trash. And so it was there. You had one. Yeah. And then suddenly it wasn't okay. Right. My closest friends were the ones at church. Elementary school was fine for me. But once I got to high school, I was a little bit more socially awkward because of the restrictions that I had. You know, like when my friends started smoking, well, I had something to say about it. You shouldn't be doing that. And that excluded me then from what they were doing, you know, going out to the smoker's corner at lunch. I didn't participate in that. So I had sort of this like self-righteous thing. No, but, I but imagine co- coffee probably wasn't that big a deal because you don't necessarily have to drink coffee or, or was it a big deal? It wasn't a big deal. Like, no, nobody drank coffee. So I didn't feel excluded from that. And but the alcohol thing does. was... Exactly. I'm assuming but you I, drink coffee now. I sure do. <laughs> now I know why they uh, suggested you don't. <laughs> Did you find that 
when you first started drinking coffee, it had like that special like cachet of being forbidden or, or was that not really, the, was it just to sold itself? No, for sure. No, for sure it did. It really did. What's I, the mystique? Why can't I have it? Because of, despite being excommunicated as wicked people by their brethren group for life, just like me, Ben and Ed being, if anything, more into God and the Bible than ever before and feeling more truthful, honest, and authentic than before, they find that they are, oddly, doing more pastoral work than ever, with no particular church they are trying to recruit people for, raise money in, or anything of that kind. And in most ways, this seems to make things go a lot better. They get to do good without asking for permission first. We have been able to connect with individuals that have incredibly complicated backgrounds and have never heard of Jesus in North America. So they are looking at us as two gay people and just assume we're safe to talk to Mm -hmm. because they know that gay people aren't allowed in the church. They just know that even though they're not religious themselves. So they're surprised to hear that we are in the church. We are lovers of Jesus and they don't know anything about him. And we went out with ice cream with a single mom and their daughter. And we were just talking and she's like, what you guys go? Like, I I don't know anything about this. Mm -hmm. What do you, what is it? And we talked about how there is a creator that is desperately in love with you and has a great plan for you and wants to know you. And she's like, sometimes I just pray. I don't know who I'm praying to, but it's like, yeah, that's somebody in your spirit is wanting to connect with his spirit because he made you with his image. And so it was a beautiful little moment. And we hope to keep having those, but those kind of things didn't happen before because we just weren't available. We were in our Christian circle, yeah. so prideful, so lifted up by man as like, look at these great guys that we completely lost track of what yeah. God was doing. And we've lost a relationship with him at some level of, that intimacy that we experience incredibly hour by hour now. We have so many stories we could tell you of God doing miracles in our lives. Emily, who was raised in a Christian environment steeped in Bible learning, but has since embraced the spiritual reassurance of atheism, gets what I was driving at with this song, and doesn't think Jesus himself lived or taught people to live in fear, isolated in a tiny Christian community. I'm tempted to ask the question as an atheist uh, with an in-depth knowledge of the Bible, do you think that Jesus taught and practiced this isolationist hide in a church community? Well, I don't think that um, Jesus practiced the kind of, um, he didn't practice any of the stuff that I really experienced in church because Jesus was friends with all of the societal rejects, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes. Mm-hmm. There was none of this isolationist stuff with Jesus. He, he talked to anybody, absolutely. Yeah. And he sought out all of those people that in my upbringing, it was like, oh no, you got to stay away from them. They'll corrupt you. Those were the people that Jesus sought out deliberately. And I don't see him or other people in the Bible teaching that it's dangerous to go out and do that and live that way. In fact, it sounds like they're saying that's the normal way for humans to live. Yep. (laughs) Did you ever bring very non-Christian friends from school or something, or did random people come out and you sort of got a a sense of what it might've seemed like to them? I I didn't really, I, I was so sheltered, you know, I didn't really have any friends outside of my religious circle, to be honest with you. I do remember um, when we were doing a house church for a couple of years, there was one boy who used to come to house church sometimes, and the goal very clearly was to convert him mm-hmm. to Christianity. And, um, you know, I just, I didn't think of it really uh, about how it all seemed to him I thought you know oh we're a bunch of cool people he's having fun clearly he must be into it but then I remember when um he did finally decide to convert 
the uh, house church that we were part of kind of threw a celebration yeah. um, in response to his having been born again. And even though I thought it was cool at the time, I could tell by his face and how red he got that he thought that was really weird. And now looking back, I'm like, that was so awkward mm. for for him. I can't believe we did that. She also feels that the walls of those magic castles did not, in fact, keep people safe and keep dangerous stuff out and away from them. It was very much, you know, we were closeted in our warm, safe um, little castle of charismatic Christianity and um, you weren't really supposed to go outside of that and be corrupted by the world. And um, your hope was, of course, to convert people to Christianity or, you know, your version of Christianity and specifically your church and to have them become part of that community. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely. How, how safe was it in there? I, I felt like it was relatively safe because that was all I knew. It was familiar. But looking back, um, it wasn't a very safe space for a lot of people, and often it actually wasn't a very safe space for me either. The Christian group I grew up in consistently refuses to be called a church or even a sect, Christian community, Christian group, the Plymouth Brethren, or anything of that kind. They need to be far more than merely that. They aren't just another group, they claim. They are the group, the one that's got God's seal of approval, the one that has Christ's own name rather than just another name of another church, the one that's obeying the Bible. I remember in third grade, everybody was going around saying, well, I'd go to, you know, the Baptist church and I go to the Pentecostal church and I, I go to, you know, uh, this other one. And then somebody, I, I was being conspicuously silent because I knew that my church was not in the mainstream and nobody would understand it. And so somebody finally said, well, Michael, what church do you go to? I was like, uh, uh, well, I, I'm part of the, the saints who are gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, because that's the only thing yeah. I knew how to say, because we weren't supposed to name it. And they all looked at me like, that's not a church. No, mm -hmm. it isn't. And then I, I, I didn't know what to feel. I was just kind of like, Ugh. unlike me, my sister simply calls it the cult. To me, like when I stuck with the cult people, it was way more dangerous, mm -hmm. way more dangerous. And that's what I thought was really, really interesting was I was taught that the evil was outside of the cult. I was taught that if I went out there in the world, you know, that was where all the bad stuff happened. But for me, all of the bad stuff that happened happened within the cult or with people from it. Some of the stuff that I saw go on, um, not just within my church, but also within our broader circle, um, because I, I wasn't just part of that one church. I was also part of a very religious homeschooling community. And at that time, it wasn't as large as it is now. Um, it was a much smaller and more close-knit um, community. So there was a lot of, like, you knew almost all the homeschoolers in the area. And... Um, a lot of what I saw within the community that I was part of and why it wasn't um, a safe space was, um, for example, the purity culture that was touted. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of discussion about maintaining sexual purity and a lot of guidelines about how to do that. But of course, behind closed doors, um, now I know that there were a lot of problems with marital rape. Um, there were a lot of problems with people sleeping with underage individuals. There were children who were being molested. Um, so it was not a safe space in that sense. And I mean, apart from 
those more drastic examples, there was just a general uh, problem of, you know, it was a, an environment that was very anti-woman as well. So as a female in that environment, you know, you were constantly being harassed about your clothing and whether or not you were modest um, and, you know, whether or not your comportment was modest as well um, and whether or not you were leading your brother astray. And you had so much accountability placed on you as a female for the sexual purity of everybody in your environment. Um, that was not safe um, looking back for any female that was in that environment. I don't think anyone could explain any of the purity culture problems better than Josh Harris, author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, explaining his 180-degree change of view on legalistic, purity-focused, magic castle culture in an interview he gave the Ideas Digest podcast. So I, I wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye. It met with a lot of um, success, if you want to call it that, in terms of the reception it had. It sold a lot of copies. Our church was hit with a, a sex abuse lawsuit because of ways that we had improperly reported issues of you know, uh, sexual abuse. I just failed in such a um, spectacular, painful way that I... I was forced to to face up to things that I had I was able to ignore when everything was going great. And mm. I saw that the church that I had had helped to lead had created a culture even though we said we were gospel-centered and saturated in grace, we actually had a culture that was legalistic and rule-based and if you didn't get things right, you got pushed out and that hurt a lot of people and that was kind of the the beginning point of me saying what what I thought was well-intentioned, what I thought was about grace is actually producing fruit in people's lives that is, that is not good. It's hmm. creating shame. It's creating pain. It's, 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 it's piling things on people that, that it's not about freedom and joy and love and peace and all the things that I think Christianity is supposed to be about. I did read some other ones that were written by women as well, but I don't remember the titles of those books or the names of the authors. It was really I Kiss Dating Goodbye that was really um, the most, the one that was um, recommended the most and most widely read. Some people were into Josh McDowell as well, um, but I never read. For people who don't know I Kiss Dating Goodbye, what would it require them to do? What would it do to their lives? Well, it was uh, the promotion of uh, courtship. So, you know, you you didn't date and um, you essentially, you just held out for that one single person that would be your perfect God-given match. And when you found that person, you would court and your parents would oversee that process and it would inevitably end in marriage. That was the goal. And so the problem with that um, was that as soon as you started courting someone, you were almost engaged. And so breakups were disastrous. It was, you know, you were just courting that person, but it was almost like ending an engagement if it didn't work out. And, um, you know, there was all of this dialogue about not giving your heart away because that made you, whatever that means. I mean, don't give your heart away. That, that doesn't mean anything looking back. But what the implication of that was that essentially, like if you courted with one person, and that didn't work out, 
you were essentially damaged goods mm-hmm. for whoever you were supposed to marry. You know, you made the grave sin of having given your heart away. And, you know, that person was always going to own that little piece of you that you gave to them, whether it was emotionally or physically. And now you were damaged goods and you were never going to be as good as you could have been for your lifelong partner. Ruth remembers how we took all of this as very normal for us. For me, I was born into it. I just took it as we were normal and everybody else was weird, Mm -hmm. right? So it was just the way it was for me growing up and meeting. We knew that there were rules. We also knew that we didn't talk about the fact that there were rules. We knew that there was a particular way of saying and doing things, but we didn't we didn't realize how weird it all was because it was our whole life. Like it wasn't just where we went Sunday morning. It was our whole life. It was the way we saw the world. It was the way we saw people. It was the way we saw life. It informed every single element of our lives of the way we thought and the way we felt, it really colored everything. So when we would maybe try to bring a friend to, to meeting, or we would see someone coming into meeting, we would just be like, they just don't know how to act. They don't know how to talk. They don't know how to do the meeting things. Like I can remember being 11 years old And inviting my friend at the time, my best friend, Nicole, and how absolutely like lost she was and how confused. Did she attempt to dress like a brethren person? She did. Um, So she was self-conscious about the fact that she didn't have a head covering. So I lent her a head covering. She was self-conscious about the fact that she really didn't have any dresses. But we said, well you're new. We'll let that pass. Now I wouldn't have dreamed of walking into the meeting wearing pants. That would, I would rather have walked in naked than walk into a meeting wearing pants. I don't know if I'd go that far, but me neither, but that's what she said. I do remember the, um, glee I had when I had, I had been kicked out, I think of the church entirely. And my great aunt, had had a heart issue and had to be unexpectedly taken to the hospital and she needed an overnight bag. And I was tasked with getting a hold of my parents um, to get this to her, but they were in the church having their Bible study. So I actually had to walk into the church. Um, I believe I was wearing soccer shorts mm-hmm. and, and a t-shirt and I sat outside thinking, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to walk right in and I'm just going to whisper, do you have the key to Aunt Nora's place because she needs an overnight bag and it's Even though important. you're not wearing your meeting costume. And I remember I went in like a, like it was like a terrifying thing to do, but the most liberating thing, I think it was one of the most cathartic things I've ever done is to walk in there like that. When a person walked into meeting and it was a woman and she was wearing pants Would you agree that this drew a bit of attention? Oh, boy, yes. Yes. It was, um, wow, that's worldly. A little bit of, oh, they must not know any better. So when I was a kid, if we saw a woman wearing pants, we would assume that she was not a Christian. We just made that assumption. 
Do you have very many memories of very many times that there was a woman inside the meeting hall who didn't have her head covered? Once in a while, a woman would forget her head covering and she would take and put her hand on her head or she would take a tissue and put a flimsy little tissue on her head. We had like a private stash Mm-hmm. of head covering on the coat rack where a woman who had forgotten her head covering could go and get a head covering. I'm trying to remember outside women coming in without their head covered. And even though I went out to meeting all of the time, you know, five times a week um, right. for the first, you know, 20 years of my life, I can only think of maybe twice or three times I could ever remember a woman being in there who didn't have something on her head. And I think invariably somebody made her put something on her head or handed her something and it it always got fixed. If you didn't want to wear a head covering, we would make certain assumptions about you as a woman that were very ugly assumptions. That that you wanted to be a feminist or that you weren't a Christian or something? Yes, all of it. Or that you weren't in submission to your husband or that you you wanted to have your own agency as a woman of course we didn't know the word agency but that's basically what what it was they do have garments that they wear in the temple that you're endowed with in the temple and I don't know much about them there's some sacred stuff about them I've seen them my parents wore them um they were like longer short sleeves and so your clothing had to cover them and they were like full body suits and they went to just above your knee so all of your clothing had to cover your garments and then you were deemed modest enough so i read orson scott card and people like that and there were vague comments about special underwear for men Mm -hmm. yeah they're called garments and there was some sort of like lettering on the nipples but i don't know what they meant or it's symbols this is fascinating, I, the secrecy of it, because yes. one, of, one of the things, uh, I mean, I, we, I was saying that churches have lost their young people. And one thing that millennials have suggested is that churches said, well, the reason why we might be in danger of losing our young people is everything's not relatable enough. So they kind of removed all the mysticism and the mystery and the archaic stuff, and they, they removed it. And a lot of millennials have said that stuff was actually kind of cool. Yeah, and that's probably one of the reasons, like, they keep it for later, or when you're married, you go to the temple to be sealed off for all time and eternity, get your garments, something to, yeah, that mystery, that allure, you Mm -hmm. know, keep striving towards being good enough to get to that point. So you never went that path at all. So you you were as almost as much in the dark as anybody. Yeah, I mean, I went, I have visited uh, the temple before when I was a teenager. So we did something um bapt we did baptisms for the dead mm-hmm. which youth anybody could do it but as a youth group we would all go down together and you would um be baptized by proxy and confirmed by proxy for someone who had died to give them the option in the afterlife to accept and, and receive whatever um covenants i guess i don't know whatever it's really weird being baptized when you consider what baptism represents Mm -hmm. you're taking living people and symbolically drowning and resurrecting them to symbolize death 
purely symbolically for people who are literally dead and will not be resurrected that afternoon. Right, right. And so there's, there's really no need to symbolically uh, simulate or represent death for them if they have died. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of about um, those little subcultures like a church where everybody's in it and uh, they don't really think outside of it. They, they narrow their world down to being that size. Have you thought about that, about how small you can make any little community and not really think about any people outside your community, whether it be a church or, or anything? All Absolutely. Yeah. Well, because I grew up in that and I mean, we were really our, our beliefs and our way of life. Um, it was just, it was such a small, we were such a small pocket in the whole of humanity, but that was my entire world. Mm-hmm. And looking back, like there was such a, a disconnect with what was going on in the rest of the world and what normal life looked like and what normal people were doing on a daily basis and what normal people thought and how normal people talked. And, um, what I found with that too, was that there was a lack of compassion quite often with the struggles that normal people were facing, um, every day. What you were saying about kind of parting ways once you went to university, that's really, really common that obviously churches do not keep their young people, especially in the last generation. What they find is they can keep teens off the streets and entertained when they don't have driver's licenses or they're very young and they haven't met all their connections. But once they go off to university and really, really don't need adults, a lot of times that's the point, the breaking point. Mm -hmm. For me, definitely. And I remember my mom, I went to Windsor and she contacted somebody from the church in Windsor and found a student Mm -hmm. on campus who then contacted me, you know, and set up rides for me to go to church and everything. And you know, that was the point that I was like, sorry, mom, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm out on my own now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make my own choices, but they tried. <laughs> That's a <laughs> really tried. common story. Um, yeah. My sister was in Japan and they were still trying to do that sort of thing. I mean, she went as far as she could and they were trying to find some way that they could connect her to some Plymouth brethren, you know, Sunday morning routine. And there's not a whole lot of that going on in Japan. I guess um, not. <laughs> they found one and it was like three people in a room or something. Once you left the magic castle, did you find that the world around was every bit as dangerous as they warned you in some ways or not really? No. Oh my God. No. Um, it was freedom. That's what happened. You know, I got out there and um, started embracing all of these people that I rejected before. And forming richer relationships and also you know I I had more appreciation for the world around me as well just nature and so on because there was no longer this um, teaching that was anti-environment that thrives in a lot of churches that really you know tout the whole end times theology thing so yeah more connected to people more connected to nature and then also finally free to love myself that's the main thing that came out of that was you know, once I was liberated from that whole idea that I was fundamentally flawed and, you know, a terrible sinner and was also liberated from a lot of the criticism that I went through uh, on such a frequent basis within my church, I was finally free to learn to love myself more, at least, you know, it's not perfect yet, Mm -hmm. but certainly 
um, I'm able to love myself more and forgive myself more now. Jane remembers being involved in Mormon meetings Sunday because of her boyfriend. I was 16, and my boyfriend's family were Latter-day Saints. His parents invited me to their church one week, and I said sure. I had no interest in going, but I figured it was important to them and not really a big deal to me to just go one time. The first hour was not overly surprising. Uh, Kind of interesting. They didn't have one specific speaker, uh, but rather they had members of the congregation go and uh, give speeches and talks about scripture, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, The culty, culty feelings came in in the second hour. In the second hour, it's time to split up for Sunday school. And in their church, they don't just split up adults and children. They split up age groups and men and women. So I was not able to sit with my boyfriend for Sunday school. As a non-member, I had three options. I could go and be educated personally by missionaries I could go to the group for teenage girls, or I could stick with my boyfriend's mom and sit in on the adult class. I opted to stick with my boyfriend's mom. So I sat in on the adult women's class, and we all sat in a circle, and all of the women took turns talking about friends and loved ones who don't accept Jesus Christ, and they cried and prayed for them, for those people, to convert. And there was a big discussion about how heartbreaking it was that they knew people who didn't go to their church. They were wiping tears from their eyes while saying things like, Kelly just won't see the truth, and it breaks my heart she won't won't get to ascend to the celestial kingdom with me. It was a whole hour of grown women crying because not everyone in their lives was Mormon. And that was when I got the culty vibes and quickly asked where the bathroom was and then roamed the hallways for the remainder of Sunday school. Because, you know, in the the Mormon church, when you turn 12, well, then they start you on the path to going to the temple. And that's all about being worthy enough. You have to, you know, prove that you're worthy. Otherwise, you can't go. And if you're if you're not granted permission to go, well, then you stand out among all the other people who do have permission of worthiness to go. I'm not surprised to hear that, but that's very overt. I think most churches do exactly the same thing, but more subtly. Mm. Yeah, and there's always this allure about the temple because all these sacred things go on inside there, which you don't get to know about until you're granted permission to go. So it's something you're meant to strive towards even though you don't know why, you don't know what's in there. It's just something sacred and beautiful. Curry remembers coming out to Sunday school with my family. Downstairs of the meeting hall, I remember going downstairs and that my earliest memory, my first memory of attending meeting is the code of many colors and, 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 uh, and the story of David and Goliath. Of course, I always thought David was a badass, and I was mm-hmm. curious about the mechanics of the sling and, and I was always wondering yeah. how the sling would work. So that the, my earliest memories are, are if I, I think my very earliest memories, are, I don't know how, what age I would be, I also remember your dad picking me up in this old Dodge white van that was cold as hell. Oh yeah. And in the winter time and getting in the back of this thing, it was all wooden and there was no, I felt like, I, I mean, my memories are that these seats were all like something your dad built or something. They, they were. Was, 
and it was cold as hell on the back of that thing. Nothing else cold. And uh, I remember freezing my ass off on the way to the uh, in the wintertime on the way to the meeting hall and your dad kind of picking us up in the driveway. And so my earliest memories are that van and those two stories I just described and then kind of going downstairs into the Sunday school. Mm-hmm. And I remember wondering why I was here and not going to Anglican Sunday school because I was baptized as an Anglican. And I always remember my, the church where I was baptized in was right across the road. And I remember going there too. Okay. Um, so I, I always wonder why I was going there. And then, you know, and I've asked my mom and dad about it later, they all, you know, they, they basically thought your dad and mom were particularly your mom, quite frankly, were wonderful people. Yeah. And that, and that they, uh, you know, they had, all, they, they really liked your mom, quite frankly, and they really liked, uh, you know, they thought that, you know, you were, you know, your mom is obviously such a nice lady. There's I, literally, I can't imagine someone not liking your mom. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they just thought, you know, like, you know, there can be no harm or no bad yeah. can come from sending our, our, our kid to Sunday school. Um, and, and I think your family and yourself were fairly good about not slagging the Anglican church too much. Although, mm-hmm. I know later on some stuff came out when you and I talked about it, some different views, but yeah. I, I do remember that. So those, those would be my earliest memories of, and then I have memories of sitting upstairs and 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 the girls wearing the things on their head. I'm sorry, I don't know what you guys called them. I can't recall. And I remember, I remember really weirdly, another memory I have that's early on is sitting there in this weird environment. And I was like, why the hell is everyone so solemn? And it's had this kind of dour, dark feel to me about it. And it didn't feel friendly and it didn't feel welcoming. And we were sitting upstairs. And everyone kind of sort of had their head bowed. And I remember asking you about it later. And you may not remember this conversation, but of course, you know, we're going to have different memories about our childhood. And you told me it was like, we're going to a funeral every Sunday. Yeah. We're going to a wake every Sunday. And I thought, well, that is, can I curse? Oh, yeah. yeah. I thought that, I remember thinking that's fucked up. Yeah. Right? Like, why would go into this every Sunday, man? I don't want to do this. But um, I remember asking you why. And then another memory I have, is where your dad got up and spoke. And obviously, I mean, as a kid, I looked up to your dad, like a lot of, he was my gym teacher and he was a mm-hmm. tough guy and a strong guy. And, a, you know, he was like, you know, he was, a, he was an interesting guy. And he, you, you know, your dad always came across as a no bullshit guy that, you know, was a fair, you know, like was kind of a man's man kind of guy. So I certainly looked up to your dad in a number of ways. And I remember when he got up to spoke and I felt some sense of pride because, hey, I come with it, Mr. Moore. And yeah. some weird sense of awkwardness because, you know, and then I don't remember the message whatsoever, but I remember his, this is a weird thing. I remember his voice changed. Like he talked differently, like he slipped into preacher mode mm-hmm. as opposed to just normal conversational mode. And there was some sort of voice changes and I can't, I can't describe it better than that, but he definitely talked more dramatically. And, yeah. and, and and so those would be when I sit there, when I think of the meeting hall, those are the immediate memories that come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I do. And I remember gathering out front and 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 everything. And then I, so I, I do remember kind of gathering out front afterwards and everyone chatting and then slowly milling away. Cool. And I work in an environment where swearing is not acceptable, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in a lot of in, in, in much of the environment. I'm, I can turn my language off rod when I choose. And I, and I was very, very considerate around the meeting people. I didn't swear at all. I don't believe. No, so. you didn't. And of course, I was um, afraid to. I mean, do you remember? Do you remember? I was pretty old before I would swear at all. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, re- I, re- I have some weird memories of some things that you would do trying to appease the meeting thing. But one of my strangest memories of you is I remember like, what in the f- are you doing? 
Like I remember thinking, this is ridiculous, Mike. And I and I tried to, I remember trying to reason with you about it. And I was just like, oh, I then it was my role of mine. That's just Mike being Mike. But it was you refused to jaywalk when we yes. were heading somewhere. You had yeah. you had to touch the fucking corner on the sidewalk because yeah. you felt like you were breaking the law if you didn't. Mm-hmm. I remember going, Oh my god, this is and I remember specifically thinking to myself, he's taking this shit too far. That's continued into adult life. If everyone breaks a rule, I get punished. That's what always happens. And with my dad and with my church, I always got overpunished. And it's right. it's continued in my adult life that I get punished for things. I, I wasn't even the one that did it. And I get punished for things that people just thought I did. So um, there's a deep psychological thing of just knowing that you are my dad's kid or you are the gym teacher's son or you are the, the Plymouth Brethren kid. So everyone can do whatever you can't. And if you do, we will make you regret it. And that's absolutely a deep thing that, so I I do remember that specific thing. Melody, who grew up and continues to be involved in a brethren group quite similar to mine, talks about how the walls of the magic castle in which she was raised seemed mainly to be built out of rules. And how about with the rules? Was your experience similar to mine? They didn't want to admit what the rules really were (laughs) or that anyone was really in trouble for. Because there aren't any rules, Mike. There aren't rules. We don't have rules. But we do expect a standard of behavior. But, you know, no one could define those. They were different for every family. They were different for every church, Um, you know, every local gathering. Because some churches write those down. They do. Yeah. Like I was kind of shocked to find, I think it was a free Methodist group, free Methodist, mind you. And they had to sign a behavioral contract promising that they would abstain entirely from alcohol and R-rated movies. This was in the nineties. Have you heard of such a thing? (laughs) No, I do know there is, um, it was one of the churches in Seattle. It might've been Mars Hill. This was the Mark Driscoll, you know, pre-fiasco. I remember the cussing pastor before he got told to stop cussing and he eventually <laughs> didn't, he went his own way. I heard that they had a code of conduct you had to sign. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was them. And two people got kicked out because they were a, like um, unmarried couple living together mm-hmm. and they wouldn't agree to stop having sex. So they got booted. That's the only time outside the brethren I've ever heard of actual rules. And of course the brethren, you know, like the Bible is your code of conduct, but. But I mean, if we're talking Catholics or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or Orthodox Jews or regular Jews or Islamic people, virtually all of the religions are fairly comfortable with writing up, especially for young people and new people, what Mm. behavior is expected. And I found that there was some, my place didn't admit to having a name. It didn't admit to the membership. It didn't admit anyone being in or being out. And they didn't admit the things that got you in trouble. Yeah, they have what's called the word of wisdom which um, was part of the text that Joseph Smith wrote, which, yeah, that was some of the main things were no caffeine. Uh, it didn't even say no caffeine. It said no hot drinks. Wow. So the, the more devout people could interpret that as, you know, not very hot soup, <laughs> you know, no hot chocolate, no herbal tea. But most people uh, agreed that it was no, no caffeine, um, no alcohol, definitely no cigarettes. So one time my church back in Linden, Washington did attempt a little booklet with some of the guidelines and it was about women's head coverings in particular. Mm -hmm. And so then it was like, why do we do this? And then the answer that was written in this little tract was 
because of the angels. Yeah. No, I, clear, right? right. Like, <laughs> angels really hate women's hair. They don't want to look yes. at it. <laughs> and, you know, so that was the best they ever did. Yeah. And that's, that's an example where I would say like a theme of this season of the podcast is that some of us need to deal by talking things out thoroughly and, yes. and a little, a little answer like, well, because of the angels is it's dismissing you. It's not actually having a discussion with you, but anything. It's an no, it's to, not. To shut down the, the conversation. It's um, a, yeah. And it's an answer that you're not supposed to argue with because it's a verbatim from the Bible. Well, there was a lot more context when that was written. Yeah. And people weren't allowed to, for instance, choose their wives. Things right. have changed a little bit. Just a little. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of hmm. rules. A lot of it targets women. Uh, we, we want to find one or two so that we can have a token thing that we're doing, but we're definitely not willing to turn the clock back several thousand years in, in most ways, which was probably good. So I was dating a Lutheran guy for a while when I was much younger. <laughs> that was frowned upon because he was essentially not a believer because he was Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Well, Lutherans believe like something completely unrecognizable to other Christians, don't they? Oh, they're crazy. Like a whole different Bible and yeah. different, everything. Different. Yeah. yeah. The imagery of this song, it's called the magic castle. And it's basically inviting people to come into the magic castle to be safe from all the bad things in the world. Was that how you were raised that you, you hide in this church and it keeps you safe from all the evil that's out there? Not really. Um, we were, I, I, I feel like we heard a lot about persecution and as believers, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't a believer until I was, I didn't get saved until I was 21 ish, mm-hmm. 21, I guess. But, you know, I wasn't allowed to go to school dances because we're Christians. We don't watch movies because we're Christians. So that muddied the waters for me for one. Um, and I feel like we grew up with the idea that we were going to be persecuted. There was no safety. Right. Um, And, you know, persecution meant, oh, the Democrats are going to make fun of you. But that was persecution. Mm -hmm. I think we always hoped and were disappointed about the complete lack of of persecution that came our way. We hoped, we thought if we're doing the right thing, we'll get some. Yes, absolutely. And ultimately, it comes down to if you're not annoying enough, you won't get enough persecution. So if you can find how to be christian in the most attention getting self-centered annoying way you might get some but apart from that it's very hard and in, in canada yes. we don't we, we're not quite the same about these things the idea there was some safety the idea of don't leave the meeting don't leave the church don't stop attending don't stop living the life because it's safe here and it's not safe to leave it it was more for us about how it would look to other people i was not actual that. it was image it wasn't for us it was for the other people you're saying it was a big show Yes. Like yes. actors behind masks. Yes. The, the I got... word for that is Hippocrates, by the way. The, the I know. Is Hippocrates. <laughs> and it's a performance. Oh. And I don't find that I get a lot of traction talking with Christians about this idea from Jesus that we're not supposed to be putting on a big show. <sighs> they would often terrible. talk about those looking on and. Yes, yes. Those looking on, um, people are watching you. You might not know, but they are, and they know what you're doing. Have to be a good testimony. We're living epistles, all of Always. that stuff, such pressure. And yes. you know, I, I teach kids, and if you ask them, "What are Christians?" That you know, they've had living epistles walking around all the time. And what are Christians? They say, "Oh, they're the ones that hate gay people." And it's like, yeah, that's not a hundred percent wrong. Um, you know, right. we don't, we don't all, but. 
and it annoys me when they don't know any differently, but that's the impression yes, that they've been that's, given. That's what they hear. If you're going out and looking for things to be mad about, I think that's a that's not really Jesus's message at all, right? Like Jesus looked at the mainstream things, found what was working, what was hypocritical, and he called them out. And he was, I, I, I hate, we gloss over so much in the Bible, that story about him coming into the temple and, and criticizing the Pharisees and flipping over the tables and uh, and then going out and he like essentially zaps a tree. Like he was very angry that day. Um, I think that's a really important story. Tim was raised in the Jehovah's Witnesses until his mom started dating a Brethren man and claims that in many ways the Brethren group seems stricter to him. You, you know, one thing that's interesting is the Jehovah's Witness part of my upbringing was, was important. And I actually, when my mom became a Christian, we got involved in the Grace Brethren uh, mm-hmm. Church. And quite frankly, you know, here they are Christians, but I, the, the, the legalism and the, the hypocrisy and the insanity, I was way more, I think, in the Grace Brethren uh, than, than I saw in Joe Woods. That's and, interesting. And, uh, I, I was raised in a Brethren group, and there's so many with that word that I don't know whether the one I was raised in is really closely related to the grace brethren or completely unrelated. Like I couldn't tell you, but I'm not surprised to hear you say that it was in many ways stricter and more legalistic than Jehovah's witness. Not surprised. Tim finds that to this day, he has trouble talking to his mom without a bunch of Christianese standing between the two of them speaking plainly. I love my mom. She she did the best she could, man. You know, Mm -hmm. she really did. I mean, I say some things about her, but, just sitting here thinking about her. I mean, she, she has been my hero and uh, always have my back. I just get so pissed off sometimes, man, because I, there, there's just so much religion still involved with it, you know, and, yeah. with her. And, and I, you know, I, if I called her right now and said, well, hey, you know, I, I just did this interview with this guy. She would, oh, Father, Father God, just thank you so much. And she, right there, she started praying. She would, yeah, <laughs> with the, with the <laughs> word just. <laughs> Uh, you got to use the word just to pray. Um, (laughs) A word you're going to hear a lot in season three of this podcast is performative. People who speak this way assure us and themselves that this is not trained, performative, church-approved, status-winning behavior, but it has a false ring to it that almost anyone from outside those walls can easily hear. There's a feeling that you are almost wearing a mask. Mm -hmm. Like you have take everything that you were in yourself and set that aside and be a brethren person. I just remember being very artificial, being very frightened, being very tense. Do you remember people having facial expressions during meeting? During meeting, if anyone were to smile, if anyone were to have a facial expression other than rapt attention and composure, you, you would probably get spoken to. Mm-hmm. What you're reminding me of is, and you keep talking about the mask, um, yeah. I'm for, I don't go to meeting anymore. But right. when I go to funerals, when I go to weddings, every time there's sort of a high school assembly that I am supervising kids at with a guest right. speaker, my face just goes dead. It's yeah. a, tra- a trained thing. 
Yeah. Like your, your, your spirit, like who you are, like when I'm sitting and talking to you, you're not, you don't have a dead face to me. Like I can, I can see, I can see you, I can see Mike, but when you were in that situation, you can't, you can't show that. Do we have any thoughts on why unthinkingly so many of us, virtually everybody just gets in the habit of your true self sort of gets withdrawn inside where no one can see it. And there's blankness outside. Any thoughts on why that happens? I think it's a fear of vulnerability. Vulnerability is terrifying. There's a feeling that if you let someone see your true self, that they won't like it, that they'll judge it, that they'll laugh at it. And that keeps people from connecting. Mm-hmm. Your dad kind of speaks a little bit quickly. And, and I remember he, in you know, like a normal tone, like what we're talking. Mm-hmm. And then he would you know, blessed father and like just a little bit more, just like there would be a little, you know, like almost, I can't, it it can't describe it, but it it definitely reminded me of a preacher, quite frankly. Like there was more flair to his voice, I guess would be a way to put it. He's still, when he says grace at lunch, it's weird for me because I mean, he's, he's not been allowed to preach for decades or, or worship or anything, but he says grace. And when he says grace, his voice does that same stuff again. And it makes you wonder where it's from. Like, where it picked it up from, I guess, as a kid listening to people do that. I, I think it's what I mean. I, I, my guess is that's kind of like just like a when, when people are speaking in something, you know, they when they're speaking directly, you know, in their mind, speaking mm-hmm. directly to God. I, I think they're trying to be more reverent. And of course, I think when people speak to an audience, it's not unusual for the yeah. for the flat, you know, for the tone for their tones to change. It's just apparent that he hated women. I think when he taught me that you couldn't expect women to behave to the the standards of calm and sanity and lack of emotionality that men could. I think he's really thinking of his own mother and nothing else. Probably, probably. And and mom being very um, placid or emotionless, I guess, would be a good match for him. I was much more like him, so I was mo- much more emotional, overtly emotional, both in, in joy and in, in, you know, sadness or whatever. So I remember being told many, many times to simmer down. That was, that was a very common thing he would tell me, simmer down and, um, don't be so, um, I don't know if it was, don't be so emotional, but it was, you know, basically you're, you're getting too worked up about whatever it is. So simmer down And, and do what I say. I'd like to go back and step in the meeting hall because my suspicion is it would seem really small to me now. Probably. Because I looked at a picture of it online not so long ago on the Google Maps thing. And and I remember, holy shit, that building's small. Um, But I remember sitting in there and feeling like, like you probably would know more than me. But I remember feeling like there's a lot of people here. Like it Mm -hmm. felt full. It felt like there was hundreds of people in there. But going back, I bet you there wasn't 50 people in there. I don't really know. But it felt like there was a lot. There was probably 50 or 60 people in there until the division um, in 91, after which like there's a third of that. So it, it really changed. Um, right. I never I never would have been there after those dates. I would no. have been there all the 80s. So. No. And I haven't been back in there since, I don't know, like 2001, 2002, somewhere around there would be the last time I went in there. Um, it's funny because it still has a sign on the front that my dad built and he's not allowed to worship there. Oh, still, still, still using a sign. I wouldn't go as far as fake every time, but it's certainly the case that you wonder if it's fake. I mean, like, there's just no doubt that it's, it seems to me like they're going to be very happy to increase the number of church congregants by one. That, yeah. that to me, I'm going to be 
now one one part bigger in their church. And I, I think that the thing you want to maximize at church is probably, it's nice to have lots of congregants, but it's probably something else. It's probably, you know, devotion to God, learning to worship better, you know, education, something. People wonder, like, what what is the the thing about Southern American conservatism? What's the thing about Catholicism? And to me, it does seem to be about a system maintaining its itself based upon like family and reproducing and children who stay in the group and all that. Yeah. The more babies you have, the more members of the church you have. Right. And I mean, that's the stereotype about Mormons, but that's not the reality around here. There's, there's no polygamy. No, but I would say around here, a lot of the Mormons weren't born into Mormonism. And I don't know what it's like in Utah. I think these churches are very, aware that their reputation's going down so if you watch the movie cars um they live in this town they live in radiator springs nobody's there and when somebody passes through they all approach them and they say come buy tires here and come and what it does to the passers-by is always like man these people are weird and that's sort of exactly what you feel at these churches is like i would never do this at my church i would never go and approach somebody out of the blue and tell them that we need their email address or anything like that mm-hmm. um is that what you think jesus did i don't think jesus did that no no I, went around and said hi and tried to get everybody's street addresses and everything he, he was a lot more uh, i think compelling right when he approaches the the two brothers the the yeah. first two apostles peter and, and he goes he just says come with me right <laughs> he yeah. just goes and collects them i think it's peter and andrew out of my head I told Tim about having trouble relating to pastors who assume that everything's safe and that there are no dangers inside a Christian group or certainly theirs. And one of the things that's amazing is when you talk to pastors who have not yet accepted the fact that sometimes that happens in Christian circles. Hmm. Hmm. It's hard to connect when they're they're the man, they're in charge. And as far as they're concerned, you go to church, everything's fine. And if you sort of say, well, you know, I have, I've been to some churches and sometimes people do this or that. Uh, and there's just a complete unwillingness to even think about that. Church is the answer to everything always. And, you know, I'm trouble connecting to those guys. Johan was raised in a Baptist church and did not end up finding his way to God. Being biracial, he knows to begin with what it's like to be the odd man out due to ethnicity alone. I have absolutely uh, had that feeling of being in the wrong room or completely out of place. Lots of time. I think most people do. I distinctly remember um, volunteering uh, at a museum booth um, that was set up at a Scottish Cayley. Um, so there was, you know, like a hundred inebriated Scots and me sitting there, uh, young and brown and very much out of place, uh, getting stared at for like three hours straight. And um, getting a, a very, very, very distinct feeling that I was not welcome. Um, uh, not even remotely welcome. Like, very much out of place. I don't think I've ever been more uncomfortable in a crowd. Um, since then, you know, I've, I have been to lots of other Scottish events. But, man, that one, Kaylee. Uh, yeah, it just it made me really uncomfortable. Um, and so I know that feeling for sure. Um, in terms of like feeling that was, that was more of a, I think that was more of a racial, ethnic, cultural thing. 
his father Don being of Indian heritage via the Caribbean, stopping at a store in America where everyone was black, feels that no one race or culture has cornered the market on being insular and not easily accepting of others. Everybody was just staring straight at me. And I felt like... I just felt like I was in the wrong place because they all... They looked like... They totally looked like they were surprised to see me. To see someone that wasn't, you know, of their race or whatever. Johan doesn't get what I mean when I tell him he acts just like a pastor ought to and goes about his atheistic day never saying an ungentle or unkind word, never showing temper, always listening, always patient, always leaping at opportunities to help anyone with anything and doing a lot of work with charity organizations. Given that what goes on at those organizations could test the patience of a saint, he says, he also has some points to make about being the odd man out at a table where there seems to be an unthinking monomind in effect mainly about making the charity work work as a performance. So sometimes he tests to see if a different point of view is going to be heard and whether a genuine conversation is going to be welcome or whether there are mental walls up against any of those. The threat of making something real terrifies people who are performing. In terms of like cultish kind of experiences, I I have been to... So I... I've sat on a few different boards in my volunteering and I've also done some like done some meetings through my work. Um, uh, and I, I, I have been in many meetings and I think a lot of us have where, um, especially when it's smaller groups where you're sitting there and you're surrounded by people and you feel like you're completely alone in the way that you feel about what's happening and you you just you want to <laughs> just shake them and say like do you understand what you're saying do you understand what's happening does does this really make sense to you do you really feel this way and uh, and you know oftentimes sometimes um I, I i will encounter people that are willing to do that to say hey you know um hold on and and Every once in a while when I'm feeling particularly brave, I'm, I'm that person because that's something that I really admire. A late friend of mine, uh, Lucy Lefebvre, she was that person. She, would, she was the one who would uh, listen attentively in, in meetings and um, she always had an open mind. Uh, and when she kind of sussed out, when she realized that there was a lot of sort of double talk going on, um, she was never afraid to just call it, call it exactly like she saw it. Um, and uh, it's one of the things I most loved about her. It could be absolutely infuriating sometimes. But um, at the same time, I, I think it was, it, was, it was always incredible to be, it was always a pleasure and a privilege to be uh, in the audience when Lucy decided to call out a whole group of people like that. Um, but I know that feeling of like, just staring at, at these people who are so, they're, they're, they're in a completely different mindset. They're to left field compared to where you are. And, and you're not sure whether they all see it too, and just aren't acknowledging it or whether you really are on your own, uh, in the way that you feel about something and, and maybe something just hasn't clicked for you. So you're wondering, you know, is, do I not get it? 
or is this all just a lot of you know bullshit right um it's an it's an odd feeling and i find that the more i do these kind of meetings and the longer i've been at it um the more inclined i am to sort of speak my mind and say hey um part of that comes with just being older and not caring as much a, a lot of that has to do with my experience the longer i sit on a committee the more likely i am to just sort of jump in I, I tend to start very, very quietly, and I just listen for a long time until I feel like I have a good handle on things. But but sometimes you just have to do it. You have to sort of call them out because it can be just surreal sitting there and listening to the shop talk and wondering, like, do they really, do they understand, do they, do they believe what they're saying? Or are they all putting on a performance just like I'm sitting here performing? And when do we stop that performance? Um, and just acknowledge that it's a performance, that it's a dance. Unlike Troy, having never resorted to hallucinogens to get into euphoric worship settings myself, I spoke with Cheryl from California, who has had some fascinating experiences with cults and was very kind about my inability to thrive in euphoric church worship settings. And now I'm more conscious of every, there's all this pressure that if I'm going to say I'm a Christian, I need to go to a church. And the problem is I don't like church. I don't like any of the churches. And the biggest problem I have with churches, I was raised in the solemnity ones. And I find a lot of peace in the silence and the solemnity. There's the, the happy clappy ones are the opposite to the smells and bells kind. And the happy clappy ones um, is about euphoria. And it really makes me uncomfortable because I can't do it. So when I go in, it's like, we're singing about Jesus. It's like, well, I'm not feeling what you're feeling. And when I sing about Jesus, it sounds different. So there is that temptation of wanting to leave or, or be sour or dismissive or something about their joy because I can't have it. I don't, and it's tempting to want to judge it or say it's superficial or not spiritual or it's not biblical or whatever. And I, I really need to learn that, you know, this is me not being able to deal with their joy. They're saying you have to feel this or you're not a Christian. That is a problem. Yeah. What you're talking about, you're dealing in the world of what I call false images or false selves, labels, what we're supposed to be, who we are. If you're Christian, you're supposed to do this. If you're atheist, you're supposed to think this. If you're a girl, you're supposed to do this. If you're my child, you're supposed to be like that. If you're at the school, this is who you are. So we have all these labels and it's very confusing internally and you know unless we find a label we like and we assume it we take on that superpower that and we don't realize it's just a costume that we're putting on this label so you're you're dealing in and i'm hearing um someone wants to you're going to be a part of us well we see we we celebrate jesus so even if you don't feel it just act like it because that's the label that you have now and you have to act like that and and then you've got the person who refuses the label that's where conflict that's why when you look at a lot of people who, who walk into a room, they don't belong. It's because they don't and they recognize it. And they're willing to say, I'm not going to pretend that I belong in this room. I'm not going to act like you. Even though you're telling me that you're the elitist of the elite and the best of the world gets to be here, I'm not buying into it. And you turn and walk out. So if we're trying to be something we're not, the heart is closed, we're not going to perceive anything. Other people might walk in and what they're faced with, the label, label resonates with them and they can walk in and their heart will open so you can't judge because your heart opened when you walked into that room 
and your heart didn't, there's something wrong with you. No, we're each unique and we have a unique place to thrive in, to grow in. It's like plants, you know, not all plants can grow in the same soil. They need different light, different water. We're like that. We need different things to thrive in, each of us. That moment when we're at church and our heart opens and we feel Jesus and we're expressing him, that isn't important. What is important is what happens afterwards. What do we do? Are we, however we experience the joy, whether it's a quiet moment alone in our house, petting an animal, what we do next is what counts. We've experienced the joy of creation of God. It's in everything. We've connected with it somehow in ourselves, in our heart, in something external to us. What are we going to do next? That moment is great. We're drawing in some light right here and there, but it's the fruit. It's what are we, how is that changing us? Have we been transformed so that we now are more loving and more kind and more understanding and more tolerant? That's what counts. Looks like I've got a couple of on-topic things in the Wicked Mailbag. James says, I was studying at the University of Heidelberg, Germany, many years ago when I took off for southern Spain during the winter break. Something about homesickness for southern California, I imagine. Anyway, while there, I ran into a group of international Christian students who urged me to ditch my unprofitable studies and cast my lot in with them. I politely resisted and returned to Germany, not without the guilt feelings that they had so adroitly implanted in my psyche. To this day, I have no idea if these seemingly sincere young Christians were part of a cult or, if so, to which they belonged. I have personal experience with Christians who have been sucked into the Amway culture via their church, not to mention those hooked into Witness Lee Bible study groups and glassy-eyed Star Trek aficionados alike. Of such are the stuff of my nightmares. When asked if he's ever gone into totally the wrong room, Smitty says... Whatever room that I am in is the right room. Melody said on Facebook, Any other church for sure would have been the wrong room. Same as a bar. Bars felt like the wrong room for a long time. My pastor friend, Shalomi Homi, when asked if he ever finds himself in totally the wrong room, says, I spend so much time trying to not make myself uncomfortable that no, not really. I did go to a Pentecostal service once on accident. That was super, super weird. I still don't understand what all the gibberish and shouting and thrashing was about. Trying to work things out, part three. My family didn't talk things out. As I said before, if stuff's going down and I'm not allowed to use words to work it out, I feel like I can't deal the way I need to deal. This goes back to my dad. I got punished as a kid, a lot, for breaking rules no one would put into words or admit were rules with no admission of why exactly I was being punished or what else I could have done besides shut up and not talk about any number of things that were central to our family. I grew up under a crushing tyranny of you know, should know anyway. I shouldn't have to. In our home, obedience was not doing anything dad wasn't expecting me to even think about doing, so never thought to tell me not to. Obedience was being predictable and the same as him. And the thing I got punished for a lot was trying to get him 
to put his expectations into words, and maybe even, shocking, I know, negotiate how it might work or what exceptions there might be. My dad repeatedly accused me as a child of trying to be a lawyer. That was my approach to continually being accused of things or always being in trouble, to be my own lawyer, because I was on my own in these situations. Grown-ups were looking for passivity, or in fact for us to play mind-reader and somehow know the expectations they had of us, but refused to put into words or discuss. And I was giving them assertiveness rather than passiveness, and often got punished as if I was being aggressive and defiant. Only equals get to negotiate. And given my father's upbringing, he knew nothing of working things out or negotiating. There was agreeing, to begin with, without work, and there was shutting up, and there was fighting. There was no working things out or discussing things option. In fact, my father and a few of his siblings as parental or adult authority figures, having married people who were smarter than they were and spawned children with far better verbal skills than they had, would present their on-the-fly angry accusations, judgments, and responses to our behaviors just as if they were clearly defined rules and say, end of discussion, when there hadn't been one. They often didn't ever put into words what the boundaries and expectations on we kids were, and when those boundaries or expectations weren't met, they'd get threatening, angry and aggressive, accusative, insulting, and self-pitying. All of my father's three brothers got divorced. His father, too. He would have himself, only he didn't believe in it. It should be noted that, to the best of my knowledge, alcohol was not a factor in any of these many family divorces. They had their fights, their makeups, their romances, and their divorce proceedings all sans alcohol. And Mum, of course, is chronically passive, won't put her objections or needs into words almost ever, resents you if you don't read her mind and make sure she's looked after too, and she knows all the words Dad doesn't know and can even say and spell them. That's how she works. Just like she shouldn't have to paint the kitchen because dad is the man and should just know that she wants that, she also shouldn't have to object or voice needs ever. So in my house, my need to have everything put into words so I knew where the many landmines were buried was viewed as an alien, unreasonable, and perverse thing. My mother always said I needed to stop because I was being... And my father said I always had to wreck everything by being a Philadelphia lawyer all the time. I'm not sure what Philadelphia had to do with any of it, but for some reason, I didn't ever become a lawyer. Even so, there's more than one relative and brethren person who says they can't talk to me because I'm an English teacher. Like, if they split an infinitive, I'm going to unthinkingly dismiss their comments. Like, English teachers never make syntactical errors in the heat of texting. But it is true, I can hear your spelling and punctuation mistakes while you're talking. In any case, I always felt comfortable dealing in words and often wanted expectations of me to be put into them. And my family wasn't down with that. Angel, raised in a full-on cult called the Children of God, has a much more extreme version of this story by far. You probably relate to all of these little hints and pressures and steering of your choices that keep happening. I was fairly good because I got beaten a lot. And I learned that if I just didn't do anything that I wasn't allowed to do, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't be beaten. But I mean, the most the dreaded words are, you know, hey, can we, ha- can we talk yeah. from a leader, you know? And even sometimes just the threat of that, some of the emotional terrorism that they would do is they would come by and say, hey, we, we need to talk. Um, I think you know what it's about, mm-hmm. um, but we'll talk in a few hours. 
And then in the, in those few hours, you would like freak out and come up with what they, you think that they maybe wanted to talk to you about. And then when you would go to have the conversation with them, they would say, okay, I'm going to let you talk because you know what it is. And you would out yourself. Yeah. You know, part of what I'm going into in this season of my podcast is people need to deal in different ways. And I've always had to talk to deal. And that wasn't a good mix because you could probably say a few things about that reluctance or that power move of refusing to put things into words. The rules maybe aren't in words and you just have to know, or maybe people are angry and they won't say why you just have to know. I think that's a very unique thing that not everybody has, which I grew up with. You just had to know so many things. Yeah. Was it explicit in, in your group that they would write it on paper and say these things are not allowed or did you just have to know them? Well, so there were specific things that were not allowed, but you had to have the, the common understanding that anything new was not allowed. Right. They wouldn't admit to most of it, but they also wanted it to be self-generating. And it's troubling that in, in people our age that when the internet comes along and all the new things come along, as you say, the old people didn't know about it. So we had to basically have part of our brain that would just self-generate the rules for us and we get in trouble if we didn't and it Mm -hmm. worked even after i got excommunicated i got a a rule forming part of my brain yeah i don't know what your relationship with rules became like mine's weird i i I don't know the rest of my life apparently rules and me there's a problem (laughs) so there are a certain subset of rules that i i don't think they're rules i think they are suggestions yeah um I drive in Los Angeles, so every uh, stop sign is a suggestion. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like if I'm in a hotel or something and there's a line that says don't cross, I'll cross it just because I can't not. Or if I'm in a museum, I'll try to touch the paintings. I've had security guards follow me through and be like, stop. <laughs> I'm this like, sounds Sorry. healthy. My, 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 mine is worse. So my, <laughs> my thing uh, is I learned young that you have to know the rule and they yeah. shouldn't have, they shouldn't have to say the rule if you break the rule mm-hmm. you'll probably get punished a little bit yeah if you want to talk about the rule you get punished a lot and mm-hmm. so my experience as a as an adult person it's nothing like your experience but even like in a job as a high school teacher there's all manner of rules right now there's covid rules and all the different rules and yeah. a lot of times they don't make a lot of sense and from a young age i learned that when rules don't make sense, people will get very angry if you talk about them. And so I sort of, I developed from a young age that if I break them, I will, I will not get away with that. I will be punished. So I've somehow without thinking, if you give me a rule that I don't like, I will obey it in the most annoying way possible. That will make you wish that that wasn't a rule. <laughs> That's so funny. That's, I don't I guess, have that with rules. That's hilarious. You, you just want to break them. I don't well, dare break them. Well, so I'll break them or... Um, if there's something that I don't understand, and this is why um, I have been told that I that I come off as abrasive sometimes. If somebody is trying to explain a rule to me and it doesn't make sense, I'll tell them all the ways that it doesn't make sense. And I've been in, in classrooms and where they are teaching anatomy, and there was this one, um, and it was like a very popular teacher. And I don't buy hero worship. To me, everyone is human. Right. So, and you know, having been raised, having to have a leader in my life. I will no longer have a leader in my life. You might have different information than I do, but at no point are you godlike mm-hmm. or, or above questioning. And so the whole class or the whole like workshop, because it was over a few days, the teacher had been saying, when you get to this part of the lower back, 
in order to lengthen, you have to like press upwards in order to get this sort of postural structure achieved. And I had been making notes because I listen. And then there was one afternoon where he changed it and he was like, you have to press downwards in order to get, and then he said the same effect. And I just was like, you said it was the other way. And he was like, no, it's this way. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then we ended up having like a back and forth in the middle of the class. And I was like, what you said was this. And with all the principles you've been teaching that actually directly contradicts. I was like, I just want to know which one it is. Like, just tell me which one it is. But if you're going to say that this is it with any sort of sense of authority in order to maintain your, your authority in order for me to respect you, you, you need to not contradict yourself. Yeah. He eventually was like, no, you're right. I had it backwards in order to achieve that. It is what I've been saying this whole time, which is the upward motion, which is what made sense to me and Mm -hmm. what is what makes sense with the body. But afterwards I had people come up and be like, why did you do that? Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean? Why did I do that? I did that because it makes sense and because no one is above questioning. And for them, it was like, I wasn't supposed to do that. I was supposed to sit with the confusion or stay with the dynamic that he was at the top and I shouldn't challenge people at the top. And for me, I'm like, if you've put yourself at the top, I want to know why you're there. I like things put into words. And so when something doesn't make sense, I like people to admit that it doesn't make sense or that they said something that they're now changing. And I've had people, just like what you're saying, people basically say to me, what were you hoping to achieve by doing that? And it's like, I just wanted it said in words. People don't like that a lot of times. They take it as if you're trying to take them down. They associate it with an identity of themselves. So they think that if you're asking the question, you're challenging them. And it's like, no, I'm challenging what you said. Like Mm -hmm. those are two different things. Very much. Like I'm I'm a classroom teacher, so I know that... Right. Some kids take anything you say about anything that they've done in terms of work as some kind of comment on them. And um, some personality, yeah. Yeah. I, I always tell, especially teenage girls who are very neurotic, I have to tell them, like, you are not this great. Like, this is not you. This is just what I thought I saw on one of the things that you wrote. Like, it's this is not, yeah. I'm trained to assess your writing. I'm not trained to assess you as a human being. I'm like, that's not my job, yeah. and I'm not doing that job. I don't know any terribly good reason I can give for wanting to present attitudes I find silly or annoying in Smurf voices, but there it is. Even before I'd heard my cousin's Smurf records, and before the Smurfs was a popular 80s Saturday morning cartoon, as a child I'd heard the song My Friend the Witch Doctor, and the chipmunks singing Christmas Christmas Time is Here. As kids, the speeded-up voices alone made us laugh, and as soon as I gained the technological ability to speed up voices, I was all over it. It may be the fact that as a child I found my parents' marching band and yodeling records hilarious, especially with the record played at the wrong speed, for this song and others like Hello Down There. I think it's part of taking something we grew up in, something presented as monumental and ancient and deadly serious and unshakable, and 
presenting it as something quaint, silly, childish, and odd, something that took itself deadly seriously despite having little reason to do so, something that was, above all, very, very little in the grander scheme of things. The song worked pretty well on the old four-track cassette recorder version I did. Was very hard to improve upon after that. With Joel's help, come with us and live in the magic castle. Come with us and live in a very happy place. Doubling my lead vocal and digitally sped up voices, I made an attempt. The notable thing about this recording is that it contains no guitars or keyboards at all. It also contains no trumpet or tuba, but just has me on kazoo. <laughs> and me going womp, 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 womp. There was a tiny bit of toy xylophone, and me playing a kick or a snare drum as well. At the time of recording Joel, we were both watching a cartoon called Harvey Birdman, which made fun of old Hanna-Barbera cartoons from our childhoods and before. Stephen Colbert had a character on the show named Phil Ken Seven, who let out an enthusiastic laugh before saying lines. I can finally build that lake house, and I'll run around naked all day. Ha-ha! <laughs> Dangly parts. Joel was pretty good at imitating him. Mostly, I suppose it's Pink Floyd with Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention peeking out in this song. There's also some influence of the Who's Tommy in it, too, as to silly voices. Here are some magic words, we all know them, nobody else knows. 